This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news, and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. Welcome to Update One. I'm Mike Hempen, a co-vice chair of the National Press Club's broadcast podcast team. With social justice protests occurring across the country, we've been hearing not only about those protests, but also the harassment that many of the journalists covering those protests have had to endure, calling into question the state of press freedom here in the United States. Our guest on this edition of Update One deals with press freedom on a daily basis. Dr. Courtney Ratch is the Advocacy Director for the Committee to Protect Journalists. And, Doctor, welcome to Update One. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. I have to ask you, as you were watching these protests occur and as you were watching the harassment and the reports of the treatment the journalists were receiving, some of the journalists anyway, what was your reaction when you saw what was occurring? I was shocked. I was watching what was happening and and being based uh, in Washington, D.C., where we saw tanks on the street. We saw in Minneapolis and and elsewhere the targeting of journalists by police uh, who appear to have shot at them with tear gas, with rubber bullets, uh, attacked them with their shields and batons. It reminded me of uh, Egypt, where I lived and and worked and did my doctoral research and the the uprisings that we saw there. I I was shocked and continue to be shocked. I think the one thing that I'm hopeful for that I I was not hopeful for in Egypt uh, is that there will be some sort of accountability. And we can talk about that in a moment. But you said you were shocked. Why do you think journalists were treated the way they were during these protests? I think there are a couple of explanations for why journalists were treated that way. First, we know that protests have long been a time when it's a dangerous time to be a reporter. Um, First of all, you've got the increasing militarization of the police, their aggressive use of tactics, the type of body armor that they wear, the training that they get. There's a lot of holdover from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and kind of getting this, you know, equipment and and militarized tactics. So that's one thing. The other thing is, of course, you know, protesters who also have their point of view and don't always want an independent observer there and, you know, journalists getting caught in the middle. But what really stood out was the targeting of journalists by law enforcement. And I think that is one of the dimensions that is really new and shocking about what we saw in the most recent outbreaks of violence. And one reason that we saw so much so much uh, violence against journalists, I think, is because there were so many protests that broke out that law enforcement took really aggressive, harsh tactics at and simply had what appears to be complete disregard for the role of journalists in documenting these newsworthy events. Is this the worst you've seen and the worst you know of in terms of the treatment of journalists in the United States? Yes, this is by far uh, the, the most brazen series of attacks on journalists. You know, we've tried to get a sense of what it was like during the civil rights era in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, We had not been founded yet as the Committee to Protect Journalists, but, you know, many of our board members and and supporters were 
alive back then. And, you know, it was also dangerous then. But again, it's very different now. You've got this very militarized law enforcement. You've got all of these um, rights to limited impunity and, frankly, a a history of impunity for uh, the killing of unarmed black men and a series of, you know, ongoing uh, violations that just have never been punished. And so wrap that up in a global pandemic, uh, health pandemic, and put the cherry on top, which is the, you know, ongoing anti-press rhetoric from the president and other elected officials and, and, and the public more generally, this constant vilification of the press as the enemy of the people. And I think we got a really combustible mix that resulted in the worst series of press freedom violations that we've ever seen. How much of a factor has social media been? Because obviously nowadays everyone has a cell phone. Everyone can record at an event, record video. And people, for the most part, are on social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. They can make their feelings known to the public. How much of a factor is social media in all this? Media is a is a double-edged sword in this. So on the one hand, social media and specifically the combination of handheld, you know, video devices and, and broadcast devices and the combination with social media, meaning that, you know, these instances of police violence can be caught immediately and broadcast and, and put online to make it more difficult. Uh, for for the authorities to contradict what the facts are. So on the one hand, that's been helpful. Um, we've seen that, you know, many of the cases of the more than 450 cases that we're investigating uh, with the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker and the Freedom of the Press Foundation were, you know, caught on video. And so there is this 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 evidence um, that exists. And then, of course, you can cross-reference that with other social media posts and do these digital forensics, which is really important. On the other hand, we've also seen reports about the manipulation of the Black Lives Matter hashtag, about um, false information and disinformation being propagated on social media and the attempts to manipulate understanding of what was happening on the ground, the proliferation of rumors, which can lead to misunderstanding about what is happening. So it's really, you know, it's a double-edged sword, as with so many communication technologies. How has your organization been involved with these protests? Well, we've, first of all, sought to document them and uh, work very closely with the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker, which we helped found back in 2017 um, with Freedom of the Press Foundation and more than 30 other organizations to systematically track violations against press freedom and journalists in the United States. So having that already set up was really important because the first step to taking action is to document what's happening. Concurrently, we were putting out safety advisories to journalists who were going to be covering the protests and in light of COVID. So again, this was like a double whammy because you've got to try to cover the the civil unrest where you've got violence happening um, in a safe manner. And you've got to think about the health implications of being out in protests, of potentially getting arrested, et cetera. So we put out these safety advisories. We had to update that when we saw that there was particular jamming happening, you know, this ramming by cars and, and vehicles. So, you know, really trying to let journalists know about the latest uh, safety updates so that they could prepare. 
it was really shocking, you know, talking to journalists and, and hearing from journalists who also said that this was like covering a conflict zone, that they had to prepare the way that they would prepare to cover a conflict zone like Syria. CPJ and the National Press Club, two of the journalism organizations that signed an open letter to police requesting better treatment of reporters. This was an effort by several news organizations, I believe 32. Any response from that letter that you're aware of? I'm not aware of any response to that letter, which I think is really disappointing given that that, you know, we should expect a response to that letter. You know, we at this at the Committee to Protect Journalists, we write a lot of letters to uh, world leaders and to law enforcement and other agencies about their treatment of journalists. We don't necessarily expect to get a response from Russia. We certainly expect to get a response from U.S. officials. We did not. We also sent a series of letters with PEN America and a bunch of other organizations to each governor that was individualized talking about each attack that was there, requesting that they open investigations, that they hold those accountable, responsible. So far, I believe we've heard back substantively only from one, which is actually Washington, D.C., from Muriel Bowser's office. And we're waiting to hear back from others. And there have been a series of letters, frankly, that have been sent. We also sent one to President Trump um, on behalf of more than 70 organizations globally calling on him to come out forcefully against this violence and in defense of press freedom. We heard nothing. And our board took the unprecedented, you know, very rare step of sending a letter um, to the National Governors Association and governors uh, about the concerns that they have with the treatment and requesting that there be accountability. And as far as I'm aware, we also have not heard back anything from that. So the fact that we are not getting any responses from these elected officials about serious abrogations of law and the First Amendment should be deeply concerning to all Americans. Now, what about news organizations and the reporters themselves? What can they do to improve their situation the next time they're out covering a protest or an emotional situation? Well, first of all, um, we have been working very hard with our partners to create a culture of safety in newsrooms and among journalists and in the relationship between newsrooms and journalists, especially freelancers, because this isn't something that you should only think about when you're going out to cover protests, but you absolutely do need to think about it. So this means thinking about doing risk assessments. One of the best ways that journalists and and newsrooms can think proactively about safety and make sure that their reporters are doing as much as they can to keep themselves safe is to do a risk assessment and understand what are the potential risks that are likely to be faced on any given assignment. That way, the journalists can have the appropriate personal protective equipment, whether that is for covering civil unrest or whether that's for health PPE, um, that the journalist understands um, what are the likely repercussions that could come afterwards from covering a certain a certain issue or an article. Uh, you know, we partner with the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, which has a legal hotline. So making sure that reporters know their rights and have somebody to reach out to. You know, there are a range of things that journalists can do. And we actually have a whole section on our website where we post safety advisories, guidance, tools and how-to videos so that journalists can get the source resources they need 
newsrooms as well. Um, there are draft safety protocols, for example, for dealing with reporting during COVID-19 um, and a lot of resources about covering civil unrest. So I can't certainly can't give, you know, a full-fledged advice here, but there is a lot of guidance available out there um, on, on cpj.org under Get Help. And what about non-journalists, news consumers, the listeners of this podcast who aren't in the news industry, but enjoy the topics on this podcast, people who enjoy being informed by good reporting? Is there anything they can do to help the journalists? Well, I think thinking about who and who you get your news from and how you get your news is really important. News actually takes money to collect and to go out and report and to produce in a way that has high editorial standards, that is fact-checked, et cetera. So when you, you know, read that newspaper or you listen to the podcast or, you know, you're getting your news, wherever you're getting it from, think about that byline. Think about who is that person who brought you this news? And then think about whether you want to pay for that news, whether, you know, your ability to stay informed and know how to, you know, keep your elected officials accountable, that you know what the latest, you know, permutations of the coronavirus are, that you know what's happening with the weather today. All of that comes from journalists who are out there reporting and getting the facts. So that, again, costs money. Think about subscribing. Also, pushing back on this fake news narrative and the vilification of the journalists, I think, is also something that could be important. There is a rising distrust in the media in America, according to many uh, opinion polls. And I think part of that is because a lot of people don't actually know a journalist. They don't actually have maybe local news organizations that they feel a relationship with. And part of that is because the local news is dying off. It's not economically sustainable. And, you know, these news deserts are arising. And so that really means that there's this distance between what people kind of think of as journalism, often equated with punditry, and the reality of what it takes to do journalism. So, you know, I think investing, especially in that local news, is really important for people to think about, and that would help support journalists. And finally, looking ahead, are you optimistic that the next time there are protests or emotional events that eventually journalists in the United States will be treated better and respected more? Um, I can't say I'm optimistic yet because what we saw during these protests is that despite the fact that law enforcement officials knew that they were being filmed and and even sometimes on live TV, they nevertheless arrested and attacked journalists. So unless those officials are held accountable, I, I am not sure whether there will be any deterrence effect on future activity. And I think the fact that we continue to document these violations against journalists um, in the wake of, you know, the biggest protests, but for example, they're continuing here in Washington, D.C., you know, I don't think that we can be optimistic until we see some meaningful reform. I know that the Attorney General of New York is doing an investigation into these attacks against journalists. That's the only one I'm personally aware of. I know that the um, ACLU of Minneapolis has filed a lawsuit on behalf of journalists in Minneapolis, a class action lawsuit. You know, so there are some things happening, but we need to see a lot more responsiveness. We need to see some meaningful action and accountability. And 
and also realize that this is all tied up in the broader issue of social justice and police brutality that were at the root of the of the protests because attacking the messenger attacking those who are charged with providing an independent report and you know non-governmental view of what's happening is an abrogation also of the rights of the citizens not just the journalists I know this is just a start. We could extend this conversation for several hours, but we'll end it here. Dr. Raj, thanks for being a guest on Update One. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Dr. Courtney Rash, the Advocacy Director for the Committee to Protect Journalists, has been the guest on this edition of Update One. I'm Mike Hempen. Thanks for listening. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast. That's update the number one podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One.